Wow. Amen. Way to go, guys. We, we pulled that off in <clears throat> how many, like five days or something? That's amazing. Uh, I'm so proud of Aaron, our, our minister of music and worship, and for our choir for a, a courageously attempting to, to put that together. It sounded great. Uh, really impressed with our audiovisual team. Thanks to Andy Morris, who heads up our communications uh, AV uh, department. Uh, did a great job with that. Thank you, guys. Uh, it's wonderful to hear voices together when we can't physically be together. I've really been enjoying some of my, my favorite artists who've uh, done these concerts from their homes, from their living rooms, and they've, they've streamed them for the world for free, and people can, can join in and, and, and comment, and they've been responding to them. I saw John Foreman do one, and Chris Martin from Coldplay, and Dave Matthews, and I've really been enjoying uh, some of my old high school friends, who uh, Jolene Dixon and Casey Black and Joel Meeks, who've all done these uh, home concerts. And I saw Chris Martin use the, the hashtag on his home concert, together at home. And I thought, wow, that's what we're doing here on Sunday mornings. We're gathering together at home. Yes, we are in our homes, and you guys are, and we're here socially distancing, and I wore a mask this morning just to, to be safe and cautious. We're trying to be as careful as we can. But you guys are at home, but yet we're together because we have the same Holy Spirit in us. The Bible tells us that we are connected by the same Spirit. We have one faith, one Lord, one baptism, and one Holy Spirit that unites us in faith. So as we gather this morning for worship in our hearts, we gather spiritually as one body, one flesh, united together by the Holy Spirit who indwells you and indwells me. Thanks be to God for that. I'm so excited to be able to bring you uh, another message through our screens while we're together at home this morning. I'm so grateful to our uh, audiovisual team who's here, our, our TV crew who comes and puts this on every week. Uh, they are real servants uh, in the background that nobody sees, so thank you to Jeff and Shelby and, and Valerie and to uh, everyone else, Mark and Andy and uh, everyone else who, uh, I'm sure I'm forgetting someone there, I shouldn't have even started, but there we go. So here we are. Palm Sunday, we, we reduced our palm order from 80 to 20, so we can have some palms to burn as well for Ash Wednesday next year, uh, as, as our custom, as is the most of liturgical churches' custom. Uh, it's kind of a, a meager offering, I feel like, but uh, I, I hope that it symbolizes something special, because today is the beginning of Holy Week, the most sacred time of the year for the Christian church. And normally, we'd all be gathered here with anticipation, and we'd be in the, the as what Dr. Sherman called, the church house, uh, together in our, our Sunday best, ready to kick off Holy Week. Normally, we'd be greeting one another with a, a hug and a handshake as we pass the peace of Christ along through the fellowship of the saints. Normally, on Palm Sunday, we'd have children uh, on this platform, like you saw in the video from last year singing and waving palm branches, crying Hosanna to the king. Uh, but this year, you, we, I'm thankful that Andy and Rachel were able to put together a video at least to, to see some of our kids. The, the video you saw of the kids in their yards waving the branches was from a, a Zoom call that Rachel did with our, our kids uh, earlier. I'm so grateful for how Trey and Rachel have continued to minister to our, our preschool and children and youth and college students uh, during these times. And, and normally, uh, we, would, 
we would be singing these songs together to one another, hearing our voices raised together, but these days are anything but normal. We know that. We know that this has turned into a Lenten season unlike any other in anyone's memory, even our oldest members here. We have three who are over 100 years old, and even they can't remember uh, the last time our, our nation, our world was in a situation, I think nine, 1918 was the Spanish flu epidemic is what I'm told. Even they can't remember back that far. The Bible has a word to describe what many of us are feeling during these days. I know that many of us are feeling anxious. Many are feeling sad. Many are, are, are feeling worried. I, I know uh, gun sales and alcohol sales have gone way up. That's never a, a good thing uh, to see. Why is that? It's because we're, we're lamenting. That's what the Bible calls that. That feeling of, of worry and of anxious uh, sadness and tragedy, it's called lament. And yes, we lament the, the loss of life that we're seeing every day. I think yesterday was the highest death toll of any nation uh, ever. Over 1,300 people died in this country alone from COVID-19. We lament the loss of the way of life as well for so many people, people who are losing their jobs, people who are working 16 hours a day like our medical and health professionals who are on the front lines of this thing. We lament together, it's true, but as Christians, we lament not as those without hope. We continue to say what the psalmist said, yet I will put my trust in God. You know, I've seen several reminders lately that lament and trust are, are not opposites. It is entirely feasible to lament and to trust at the same time. I think that's what we're called to do as Christians. And nowhere do we see that truth of lament and trust being held together in tension, but still together, than we do on the cross of Jesus Christ. When Jesus cried out in some of his final words in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was both a cry of lament because in that moment he was feeling the weight of the world literally on his shoulders. He was dying an excruciating death while being cut off from the eternal fellowship he'd always experienced with the Father and the Spirit. And yet notice that he said, my God, my God, even in those dark times, he continued to claim God as his Lord, as his God, the one in whom he put his trust as evidenced by how his final words were into your hands, I commit my spirit. It's to those events of the cross that we're beginning to look today as we enter into this Paschal season, this time known as Holy Week. We're going to be looking at passages from the Gospel of Matthew that, that trace the events of this special week. And Matthew devotes about 25% of his entire Gospel to, to this time period in Jesus' life. Why? Because it's the climax of Jesus' life. Everything in his 33 years of existence has been pointing towards this period. And it's not only the climax of the Gospel narrative, but it's the climax of the story of everything ever. Because after this week and the Sunday that would follow, nothing in the cosmos would ever be the same. Everything would be changed drastically because God in his providence was about to do something so amazing 
to unleash a new kind of power onto a fallen creation in an effort to bring it all back to himself. And I had planned this little Easter series way back in December and January, and I decided to call it Christus Victor, how Easter defeats the dark. And my thought was that Christus Victor is one of the theories of atonement, and there's several theories of atonement. In the, in the 70s, this guy wrote a book called Christus Victor, and he said, it's the right way, it's the only way to understand atonement. That's not true. There, there are many right and proper ways to be held together in how we understand how Christ made us at one with God. That's what atonement means, to become at one with the Lord. And Christus Victor is just one of those theories, but it's one that I think is neglected and that we need to recover and understand. And now more than ever, I didn't realize how important it would be to proclaim victory over darkness as it would be during this time. It's a message that I need to hear. And it's a message that our world needs to hear during a time such as this. You know, we tend to usually think of the cross and the resurrection and the events of Easter as some sort of um, transactional kind of occurrence. We think that Jesus died for our sins and he rose from the dead, yes, so that we can go to heaven and be with him forever. That's it, end of the story. That's true, but it's not the end of the story. Yes, Jesus did take our sins upon himself. Yes, he did die in our place, but there's more to the story than that. There's something very important that we need to understand. While it is true that the cross and the resurrection did justify us and, and, and redeem us from our sins, it's, it's so much more than an exercise in, in sin management. It's, it's so much more than that. What Jesus accomplished on the cross and in the empty tomb was a revolution. It was the start of something incredibly new because he's overthrown the powers of sin and darkness and death forever by the events of these three days. And that is good news. It's gospel news. Jesus has conquered. He has emerged from the tomb victorious as the victor, as the, the conqueror, but not, not as a warrior king standing over his slain enemies, but as a homeless man riding on a donkey. And that's what Palm Sunday points us to today. So let's start this series off by reading our text for today from the Gospel of Matthew, from chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. Uh, I, I love to hear stories. I heard that Carlton Carter, 93-year-old man, has been a member of this church since 1958, that uh, one of our, uh, his Sunday school teacher, Calvin, went and worshiped with him in his home, six feet apart. I saw a picture of it. And uh, they stood together for the reading of God's word. So I would invite you now uh, to join Carlton, if you're able to, and uh, wherever you may be, if you'll stand in honor of God's word and get off the couch in your PJs or whatever you're wearing, this is the word of the Lord. So hear these words with your heart and not just your ears. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt 
the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. I love that picture in my mind that I have of everyone standing as we read God's word together. I'm a big fan of music. I love listening to music. I used to play a little music. I knew early on that music wasn't going to be a career for me, but I love uh, how songs are structured and how uh, chord progressions can craft a song. And I think it's interesting sometimes when songwriters choose to end a song uh, on a chord that is unresolved. I think that's the word, Aaron, if I'm correct, with, with music terms here, that, that if a uh, a song's in a certain key that there has to be a sort of musical resolution at the end of a piece in order for it to make musical sense. But sometimes if it fits a certain song about longing or, or emptiness, maybe, uh, songwriters will choose to end a chord with this tension of, of an unresolved chord ended on the, the four chord of a, a major progression or something. And, and even non-musical people know what I'm talking about because it can kind of feel like fingernails on a chalkboard if, uh, if you're really in tune with a song, you're jamming along, and then all of a sudden it just hangs there, and then it just ends. What do we do with that? It's, it's unfulfilled. You know, fulfillment and, and is one of those things I'm hearing a lot about lately because my wife and I, in these times of social distancing, have been ordering as much as we can and trying not to go out. We've had deliveries from, you know, Publix and from Walmart and from uh, Target and, and from restaurants even and Amazon. And, uh, and what happens is, is when I, I get my order uh, delivered on my doorstep, I'll get a notification that says your order has been fulfilled. That means the, the balance between my money and the goods that I wanted has been restored. It's been fulfilled. What we see in this text today is fulfillment. What we see is, is this tension that has been all of creation groaning and longing since the fall of creation back in Genesis 3. We're starting to see that become fulfilled. We're starting to see that tension of brokenness resolved. You say, wow, that's a lot to get out of this passage. Well, just track with me for a minute. First, we see the, the small fulfillment of Jesus's present commandment in verses 1 to 3. That's fulfilled. Look at what I'm talking about in, in chapter 21, verse 1. He tells two of his disciples to go in the village where they're, they're going to find a mama donkey and a, a baby donkey tied up. And he tells them to untie him and bring him to him. And then in verse 3, he says, if anyone says anything to you, because that would be kind of weird if you just walked into a town and started untying animals. Stop, thieves! What are you guys doing? What do you think you're doing? He says, if you... See, I hear someone say that, tell them the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. It's a weird thing to say, right? Why would Jesus tell them to do this? Why would he tell them to go and find these animals 
And, and why would he say the Lord needs them? Does the Lord need anything? Isn't he sovereign over all? Couldn't he have commanded angel armies on the cross to come in and save him? Absolutely. Was Jesus in his humanity too tired to, to continue the journey into Jerusalem on foot? No, I don't think that's it at all. There's something more profound happening here. That's the point of this is that Jesus, his first commandment was perfectly fulfilled. Everything that happened was exactly as he said it would be. The disciples found the mama and the baby exactly as Jesus told them they would, and they obeyed perfectly, and the animals were brought to him. It was fulfilled. But that's just the first fulfillment. That's not really the point of this passage, is it? Something more significant is being fulfilled here. In, in verse 3, when he says the Lord needs them, he's, he's pointing towards something more ancient, more profound than just entering a city on a donkey. What Jesus is doing is fulfilling an ancient messianic prophecy. The reason he needs these animals is because it's part of God's plan from 500 years ago when the prophet Zechariah prophesied this is how the Messiah would come to his people. Everything that Jesus does in all of the Gospels is fulfilling God's story. Everything that he's doing is playing his part in God's plan for redeeming all things back into himself. Jesus himself says that when he came to earth, he didn't come to abolish the Old Testament. He didn't come to throw out the Hebrew scriptures, but to fulfill them, to complete them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 to 4, the Apostle Paul gives the church this beautiful kind of a creedal statement, a little creed, if you will. He says in, in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. I told you Christ died for our sins. That's true. In accordance with the Scriptures. Everything Jesus does is in accordance. What Scriptures is he talking about? The Hebrew Scriptures. Verse 4, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures. Everything Jesus does is in accordance with God's word. So what Jesus is doing with these donkeys is, is bringing to fruition these past prophecies from five centuries ago. Matthew makes this clear by quoting Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 here in verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Zechariah, in his entire verse, includes the ab admonition to rejoice. It's, it's good news for a time like this. Let's look at that, that whole text of Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, he says, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's really one of the most powerful messianic images in the entire Hebrew Bible. Here comes the king, the rescuer, the servant that God would send to, to save his people. And he's coming to the, the mighty capital city of Israel. 
Israel's righteous king riding into Jerusalem. It says that he has salvation. That means he has the power to save. That all makes sense, right? That's how we would picture this Messiah to be. But what about that last line that says that he would be mounted on a donkey? It says that he would be humble and mounted on a donkey. Shouldn't that say war horse? You know, Alexander the Great would come into the, the cities that he was conquering on a great war horse, and he would lead a parade of decorated troops in this magnificent display of power. Sometimes he even rode on a, a war elephant. That's a, a mighty sign of his strength, right? But Jesus doesn't do that. It says that he's humble, too. The word for humble in Hebrew really doesn't, we think of humility as a good thing, but that's not how Hebrews thought of it. The, the Hebrew word anav really means poor. It means lowly. It means like lower class. It, it means like, like downcast and meek. It's not something that people would aspire to then, nor do we aspire to be lower class today. Most of us don't. It's a word that's associated in the Bible with suffering and hardship. This is clearly going to be a different kind of king than any earthly king before. You know, so much of this passage is about expectations. I got to jump in on a few Zoom classes and say hey to some of our folks today. It was great to see your faces. I miss you, like Lil said too. I miss you guys so much. And absence does make the heart grow fonder. And I look forward to seeing uh, your faces back together when we can gather once again. What a glorious day that will be. But I heard many classes talking about the expectations of the people, that they were, what they were looking for in a king and a messiah even in a prophet, in verse 11, it says that Jesus is a prophet. And while that's true, they're not quite understanding really what's happening here. We expect our kings to be strong. We expect our kings even to, to be arrogant and, and proud and even to be violent and have some uh, ability to force and to dominate. But God's word has always been pointing to a Messiah that was unlike any other, it would have been easy for God to simply say, oh yeah, one day you're going to have a, a warrior king who's going to come in and kill all your enemies and you'll be free. That's, that's not the way of the gospel. <clears throat> Instead, we get Isaiah chapter 53, written six, seven hundred years before Christ. Listen to how the prophet describes the true servant of the Lord, the one who will save us from our sins. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. That's our king. That's the one who was coming to save. I think it's fascinating, too, that this messianic scene of the, the king of, of the Jews, the, the Messiah coming to his people, was prophesied all the way back in Genesis, in chapter 49, uh, verse 11. Many of you knew that Matthew quoted Zechariah, but I don't know if you know that this prophecy was foretold all the way back in, 
in Genesis chapter 49, you know the story where Jacob is dying and his sons all come to him for a blessing and he blesses each one of them. These are the guys that would become the 12 tribes of Israel, Simeon and Levi and Reuben and all those guys. And he gets to Judah and he gives Judah a really special blessing. Here's what he says to Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Wow. We know that the kings would come from the line of Judah, like King David, the greatest king of them all. He expanded the borders of Jerusalem. He brought peace to Israel. He conquered his enemies. David never rode on a, a donkey. We have no evidence that David ever had a, a, a colt that he would ride on. And, and what's this part about the, the blood of grapes and having his garment washed in, in the wine, the blood of grapes? David never had anything like that happen to him. This is about a king that would come after David, a greater king, also from the line of Judah, one who would be born in the city of David in Bethlehem from whom the scepter would not ever depart. I think this is probably one of those passages that Jesus was explaining to the, the two guys on the road to Emmaus when he said that he explained to, to them all about himself from the scriptures, beginning with Moses and the prophets. A king riding into a city on a donkey is such an absurd picture. I saw one commentary where the commentarian said uh, that it would be like our president, the president of the United States, riding down Fifth Avenue in New York City on a tricycle, or going down the magnificent mile in Chicago with thousands of people there to watch on a little scooter. What a bizarre picture. Zechariah wouldn't make this kind of prophecy up. And Jacob surely could not have possibly known that the future ruler from Judah's line would bring in his donkey's colt and connect it to the true vine, to the root of Jesse, to the Messiah himself. But here in Matthew 21, it all comes together in perfect fulfillment. The point of all this, the reason that we see Jesus riding on a donkey is to prove that God is faithful. And in Christ, all of God's promises are yes and amen. His word is faithful. You can count on it. It comes to pass. What he says will be, will be. And just as Jesus entering in on a donkey was a greater fulfillment than that first little fulfillment of the command that he gave, so even a greater fulfillment awaited him there in Jerusalem just a few days later. Yes, Jesus rides in as a king on Sunday, but just five days after that, the same crowds that were welcoming him in this moment shouting, Hosanna, would then be shouting, crucify. God's greatest promise, his promise to restore his beloved creation back into himself was about to take its greatest step forward. His promise to restore the kingdom, not the kingdom of Israel, not the kingdom of the United States, not the kingdom of Woodmont Baptist Church, not the kingdom of Nathan, but the kingdom of God, the kingdom of 
heaven on earth. His promise to do that was about to be unleashed in the creation with great power. But not the kind of power that we think of. This power of the cross on Good Friday wouldn't come in the form of the angel army that Jesus could have called down. No billion angels swooped in to take over governments. That's not what we're talking about here. It's not a power of violence. It's not a power of physical strength. It's a kind of power that upends everything that we thought we knew about power in the first place. It's the kind of power that is subversive and that works from the bottom up. In his excellent work, The Day the Revolution Began, N.T. Wright says, a new sort of power is going to be let loose on the world on this Friday, and it will be the power of self-giving love. This is the heart of the revolution that was launched on Good Friday. You cannot defeat the usual sort of power by the usual sort of means. If one force overcomes another, it's still force that wins. Rather, at the heart of the victory of God over all the powers of the world, there lies self-giving love, which in obedience to the ancient prophetic vocation will give its life as a ransom for many. Wow. This kind of power would be about self-giving love because the God who's behind this divine power himself is love. Love is what defines Good Friday. It's what makes a tragic and dark and terrible day actually good. You know, the ancient world regarded crucifixion similar to how we would view the electric chair today. It wasn't something that you would talk about at supper Again, Wright says, the very mention of crucifixion in polite Roman circles, since it was the lowest form of capital punishment, was, was taboo. It was reserved for slaves and for rebels. As for Jews, the very idea of a Messiah crucified was scandalous. A crucified Messiah was a horrible parody of the kingdom dreams that many were cherishing. It immediately implied that Israel's national hope was immediately and radically being redrawn downward. The thing is, not much has changed in our world or our culture today. People still see the cross as, as foolishness, as superstition, or as wishful thinking. You know, some people merely see it as a, a cultural symbol. I got a huge cross here behind me. Maybe it's just a, a relic of a, a Bible belt that once used to be. But people don't see real power in the cross. They don't see the fulfillment of God's good promises in it. But I love how the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The power of God is the cross. Riding a donkey was merely one way that God fulfilled his promise to send a savior who would be unlike any earthly king that ever was or is or ever will be. He would be more than a great teacher, more than a brilliant uh, moral ethicist. Uh, he would be more than a, a, a great political leader. He'd be more than a compassionate example to follow. He would be fully God and fully human at the same time. 
He would condescend to us. He would lay aside his glory. He could teach us a new way to live into God's kingdom. And it would be through turning the other cheek and going the extra mile. It would be through loving God with all that we are and loving our neighbor as ourselves and self-giving kind of love. And ultimately, he would be led like a lamb to slaughter, a spotless lamb who was silent before his shears, led by love, not by soldiers, up a hill called Golgotha to take our sins upon himself, to be nailed to a cross, and to be raised up to the earth for all to see, to die a humiliating death. Surely this was not the victorious Savior that we had expected, but the cross is the key to all of this. I pray that you'll be able to experience the power of the cross this Easter season. Let's pray. God, thank you that you love the world so much that you gave your only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Thank you that you came to rescue the world and that you fulfill that plan through Jesus. God, we await still the, the true triumphal entry when you break back into our world to make all things new. That will be the greatest fulfillment of all. Lord, we pray these things in the holy name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you for tuning in today. We appreciate it. God bless you guys in this Easter season. We're going to invite people who are watching online now to, to continue to worship with us. Uh, if, if you're feeling the Holy Spirit tug at your heart this morning, I invite you to call in 615-297-5303. Lil's actually on the phones right now. would love to talk with you. Comment on our Facebook page and, and Trey's on there. He would love to, to connect with you. Uh, if you're searching for a church home, this is a great season to get connected. Get plugged in. Take that leap and, and say, I want to be a part of what God's doing at Woodmont Baptist Church. Reach out and connect. If you're hurting, we want to know. We want to be there to help you. Uh, whatever it is that's going on in your life, God can answer it. God hears prayers. He hears our lament. And he also hears our, our cries of trust. The word Hosanna, what's used on Palm Sunday today, is actually a cry both of lament and trust at the same time. Hosanna actually means God save us. It's a cry of despair, but it's also a cry knowing that God can save us. So I invite you to, to cry out to him today, uh, to ask him to save us, because we all need to hear the gospel message once again that God so loved the world that he sent his only son, so that whoever believes in him, whoever, may not perish, but have everlasting life. That is good news, and it's represented nowhere better than this week as we look towards Good Friday, which is truly a good day, because on that day, God judged sin, his cup of wrath was poured out on all iniquity of the world on the shoulders of his only son so that you and I could be free. And not only did that transaction of sin happen, but more importantly, maybe in this time, in that moment, the world shuddered because Satan was dealt a death blow. He knew that he had been crushed and defeated. He knew that he was never gonna win because all the sin and all the havoc and all the pain that he had unleashed on the world had been judged and defeated in that moment. Praise God for the cross. Praise God for this Good Friday. I pray that as we sing this song, The Wonderful Cross, that you'll be able to really mean that in your heart, that you'll see the cross as something more than a relic, something more than a symbol of a bygone era, but as the power of God to save. And it's about self-giving love.
My prayer and hope is that we'll be able to live that same kind of self-giving love out into the world as we leave uh, our homes eventually one day and as we put stuff out into cyberspace online, as we make phone calls and send emails. I pray we would do all of that in the spirit of self-giving love, just as the Lord poured out his love for us on the cross. I want to close in a word of prayer, and I want to pray specifically for our medical people. We have several, several medical and health professionals here in our church, and I just want us to, to gather together as the body of Christ now online and lift them up together in the name of the Lord. So will you join me now in praying? Lord, uh, Rachel prayed earlier for our, our, our medical health providers across our, our city and our nation and our world, but I want to pray now specifically for those in our church fellowship, the family of faith here at Woodmont Baptist Church, for our doctors, for Sally Burbank, for Dewey Dunn, for Ed Glenn, for David Gregory, for Jeff Herring, for Jerry Hickson, for Ashley Karpinos, for Ashley Minter, for Debbie Sherman, for Trent Wallace. God, for our nurses, for Vicki Anderson, for Jessica Beret, for Laura Brooker, for Martha Buckner, for Kylan Daniels, for Kathy Dunn, for Sandy Murabito, for Sarah Tarr. And God, for our PT and OT folks, for Carabelle and Emmy Maffitt. God, we, we, I'm sure I'm missing some, but we lift these people to you now that you would protect them, that you would give them comfort that comes from you. You would give them supernatural energy and discernment as they stand up for the, the front lines to, to fight the pandemic that is wreaking havoc across our city and across our world. Now we pray for peace for their families, for protection over their homes. We pray that you would enable them to be effective in their calling, to, to play their part alongside you, the great physician. We pray these things in the powerful name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thanks again for joining us today. Uh, blessings on you. Let me give a word of benediction over you now. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.